1: Hey guys, my name is Alex Ferrari, and I am a filmmaker, author, uh, podcast host, and a thousand other things that I do, but that's what I'm mostly known for. You might know me from uh, being the founder of Indie Film Hustle and Bulletproof Screenwriting.tv. Uh, uh, both of those websites are leading uh, resources for filmmakers and screenwriters in the entertainment business. And what I'm excited about now is my new uh, online education platform and courses I have called IFH Academy, where I team up with uh, Oscar-nominated uh, ac- cinematographers and screenwriters and bring the best of uh, filmmaking and screenwriting education to the masses.
0: Alex Ferrari, welcome to the Make It podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it.
0: Anytime. This is super exciting. Uh, you are... Um, a leader in your field and uh, the choice to come on here is is, is such a long one sort of overdue and uh, glad to have you on here. Uh, It means the world to me. We talked about a little bit of that before we started recording but this is going to be a fun conversation wide ranging and as I told you before we will likely run out of time before we run out of topics so round two is definitely in order but to get the audience this this global audience that, that may not be familiar with you. I don't know how they wouldn't be if they're in film but uh, they may not be. I'm going to give him a little bit of a bio. And like I always say, this is the Internet. So if anything sounds wrong or incorrect, feel free to correct me. Alex Ferrari is an author, blogger, speaker, consultant, the host of the number one filmmaking podcast on iTunes, the Indie Film Hustle podcast, and an award-winning writer, director with 25 years of experience in the film industry. As a director, his films have screened in over five international film festivals. Alex exploded onto the indie film scene with his award-winning short film Broken. To date, the film is screened at over 200 international festivals and has been reviewed by over 250 news outlets worldwide, including famed film critic Roger Ebert. After launching Indie Film Hustle, Alex created the world's first streaming service dedicated to filmmakers, screenwriters, content creators, and artists called Indie Film Hustle TV. That is awesome. Uh, Alex's feature film debut was the award-winning This Is Meg, and his current project is the feature film On the Corner of Ego and Desire, a satirical look at the indie film world shot entirely at the Sundance Film Festival. His first book, Shooting for the Mob, Hit the Amazon bestsellers list within a week of its release. And his second book, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, How to Turn Your Indie Film into a Money-Making Business, rocketed to the top of the Amazon bestsellers list. Became a number one bestseller within 10 hours of its release. (laughs) Make sure I read that right. That's incredible. (laughs) Alex currently lives in Los Angeles with his lovely family. He's a devoted practitioner of meditation. Loves how it aids in the creative process. And he also speaks regularly at screenwriting and film events, festivals, and conventions. Alex, what a mouthful. What an amazing (laughs) resume. What an amazing career. (laughs) Thank you, man. I'd love to start at the beginning. What do you remember about growing up in Queens?
1: Uh, In Queens, man. Back in the day, uh, I was raised in Jamaica, Queens. This is before 50 was there. Uh, (laughs) Excuse me, 50. Before 50, 50 50 50 was there. Fitty, uh, I uh, I, in Queens, man, I just remember New York. Uh, I love New York. I love going down the city. My, my stepfather was a, t- a cab driver. So he would take me into the city and I would sit in the front seat of a cab in New York in the 80s and sit there all day with him, like eight hours just driving around town with him. And I would just, and I would just like see all these crazy, it was like, it's like an episode of Wall Street. Meets like after hours from uh, Scorsese's After Hours. was like it was an insane time, uh, but it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I, I fond fond memories of New York. Very very. Honest.
0: That whole area has changed today yeah, a bit. It's a bit uh, changed. <laughs> yeah, w- what would you say is the difference? If you had to pull out something to to tell us to explain to this audience what New York and Queens was like in the eighties versus now.
1: Oh man, it was it was it was a lot um it was a lot and I know it's hard to believe, a lot dirtier, uh, a little bit grittier. Um you know, there were just people just breakdancing on the side of the road. I remember watching. I mean, I was there when breakdancing was born like in the early 80s. So, and like I I mean, I was I was I was a kid. I was a, you know, I was a first second grader at that point in my life. But I remember walking the streets and just seeing bunch of kids with some cardboard on the floor and just like, you know, with the boom boxes and stuff and people walking around with those giant, you know, boom boxes and that energy graffiti. I, I used to love doing graffiti, uh, not on walls, but <laughs> like hand draw. I was too young. By the time I was old enough to do it on walls, I was already in Florida. So uh, not, not the same graffiti vibe down there. Um, but uh, it was, it, it was, um, it was just a lot, the term grittier uh, look, man, look, look, a perfect example is my my playground was made of metal um, and it was it was 30 stories up <laughs> on cement. So our monkey bars, I'm not joking, would go up 30 feet. At least it seemed like 30 feet to me. But it was let's just say if I, when you fall and you fall the wrong way, you you're gone because it was cement. There was no wood chips. There was no rubber or anything. And then the I just remember the. Um, the slides being full metal and in the hot New York summer sun and you're wearing shorts, you got third degree burns going down again, two stories like that thing was high. You know, it was at least 20, 30 feet up and you just just hear the singeing of skin on the way down. You see, I, I still think I, I still think my generation is probably one of the greatest generations because we are, and every generation says that, but we're between. We're the, I call us the in between generation because we have one foot in the old school and we have one foot in the new school. So we were there when the internet was born, and and but we know what it was like without remote controls <laughs> on right. the television. Like I was the remote control for my grandfather. My grandfather was like, go change the channel. And thank God there was only like three channels or else I would have been out there all day. So, yeah, I remember, we remember that world, but we also are, we also understand the new world, you know, dial up. And, you know, I still remember going online in college and typing up Paramount.com, nothing. Disney.com, nothing. BMW.com, nothing. Like there was just no website up yet. So I remember that. I mean, I'm dating myself, but I remember all of that. So uh, I think our generation no, is, you remember, right? You're, yeah. You, we're similar, we're similar vintages, aren't
0: we? Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm right with you. Like if somebody took a video or made a meme out of somebody clicking the cable box channels, click, 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 click. <laughs> if you don't know what that is and you didn't grow up in that, in that time where you walked to the TV and you change the channel with a, with your hand and it made a click, 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 click sound. And you, no, that's no, that no, was no. how you. Until that was you like,
1: hold the antennas yeah. and you're like, you're trying to get the reception and you like, and and because you're touching it, that the the, the the image comes in great. And your parents like, don't move. And you're sitting there for thirty minutes while they're watching Fantasy Island. Like, <laughs> I just I just posted a meme. I just posted a meme on Facebook, which was genius, and it made me sad because it's like, you know, you're old when all the video game consoles that you grew up with are behind glass in a museum, <laughs> and you see like Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis. It's just like. Oh my god, am I that old? Jesus.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. Like if you didn't go to the grocery store and buy aluminum foil so you could watch TV, you don't you don't get it. Hey Amen. Hey Amen. <laughs> preach if, preach. If you, make, if you didn't make a trip to the store just Saturday, to do aluminum foil so you could watch TV, then then Saturday
1: morning cartoons, man. My girls mm-hmm. will never understand Saturday morning cartoons because they have every cartoon ever made at their fingertips where you would wake up yeah. at six and stay there till eleven or twelve until the smurfs and and, uh, he, man, and all that other stuff just, yeah. you know, finished out, man. It was, Oh, it's the best. It was the best. And then you would go to a video arcade and then was, like, what's a
0: video arcade. <laughs> it was curated for you. Yeah. It was curated and now it's not curated. So it's just kind of out there. It's like, boom. And it's everywhere. A, lot, a lot of content is like that. And and we, we'll talk about that as, as the conversation maturates. It's, it's a, it's an interesting concept. It's not that it's better or worse. It's just that it's different. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like those moments, too, growing up in Queens, being in that front seat of the cab all day, kind of people watching, trying to stay safe, really being amazed at what you see, uh, but but also surviving and, and, and being with family. It, it drove you to be the, the quote-unquote hustler slash entrepreneur oh. you've always been. Um, I, I suppose you were down in Florida by the time you were doing garage sales. Uh, how, did, how did you find garage sales how did this become an idea because it sounds like you probably were doing this before Gary V was doing it
1: uh, I think Gary's a little bit older than me but I actually my first garage sale was in New York when I was like this is the best story I don't even know if I've ever told this story yet publicly but it was just I, I I was with my grandma and I had lived in an apartment building in, in Jamaica and I said you know what I'm just gonna grab a bunch of my stuff and I'm gonna go out and sell it I just thought of it like, yeah, I don't need this. I don't need that. Let me just put it all together. And then I went out to my, the curb of my apartment building, which had no traffic whatsoever. And I sat there waiting for someone to walk by to see if I can sell them something. And I didn't go. And I go, grandma, you know, down by the subway where everyone's coming in and out down the street, that's where all the action is. Let's go. Grandma, she's like, let's go. So she, so, so we went down like this is, and now we're, now we're down like in the main area of the bodegas there and, you know, and 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 this and it's there's a there's a subway, so there's just a ton of traffic going out. There's a lot of traffic going on. I'm like in second grade, so what am I? What am I? <laughs> eight, seven, seven, or seven, eight. Yeah, yeah. seven or eight. So I'm out there with a bag full of like books and old toys and whatever else I grabbed, and then we went to a corner. It's just a, it's just insane. I went to a corner where all the action was. I sat in front of this bank. My grandmother walked into the bank and stood behind me through the glass. But it would look like I was just a, like a homeless kid out there selling, selling shit. She then didn't want to sweat you. She didn't want, she didn't want to be like hanging out, like, you know, you know, cramping my style. So she was supportive. Then my mom is coming home from work, comes out of the subway station. This <laughs> is pre sells pre-cell phones, pre-texting, pre- any of that stuff. So imagine your mother (laughs) walking up, hard days of work, just took the subway 30, 40 minutes home. She's walking and she sees her son by himself in the middle (laughs) of like the street selling stuff. Could you imagine what went through her head in the Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, and I sold nothing by the way, but that was the genesis of the, that's the very first time I ever tried to hustle try to sell something then um when i got to, when i got to florida i um i uh I, I i just figured that out i was like you know what let me let me put again let me put all my toys out but then i went out from my father's house where there was a lot of traffic it was a it was a it was a, a good a good amount of traffic that would flow through the street that there was there uh he lived on a corner and uh and i just started selling and then all of a sudden after the first one i did i was like oh i made 80 bucks today that's yeah. a lot. And yeah. then I'm like, okay, let me just keep going. So every weekend I would go and I would work. And I was the only kid that was flush all the time. Like I was always rolling. And then I, I was also like Gary Vee in baseball cards, garbage pail kids, comic books, all that kind of stuff. I hustled all that stuff back in the day with the Jose Consecos and the Don Maddenleys of the world and and garbage pail kids. I mean, that's really dating me, but I was just like, you know, first series, second series, and then comic books I'd been into since third grade, fourth grade, I was probably collecting Spider-Man, X-Men, all that kind of stuff. So I was always, I was always hustling. It's just something that's ingrained in me. And then when I discovered filmmaking uh, as an actual career, which was when I was in, uh, in high school at a video store, uh, then I combined those two and it took me a while before I could figure out the two. to connect them. And then that's when broken and I was able to sell my DVDs and all that kind of good stuff. And that's where the film entrepreneur method came from.
0: Yeah. I want to jump on that a little bit, but, but there's so many crosshairs and in in which are parallels in which we're just so similar, like in this studio, right behind this camera, I have a stack of garbage pill kids.
1: Nice. What series? uh, series?
0: All over. So, so they're just like from my childhood, like the things that survived. And I've got like a box of baseball cards and I've got a, a nice collection of comic books that I've just still just holding on to like first edition Spider-Man's and just like unreal kind of comic books. But,
1: I re- but let just, I don't mean to interrupt you. I recently sold my entire comic book collection from my childhood. I just sold it because you know why? Because this is Did what Did you happened. write a
0: suicide note as you were doing it or like?
1: <laughs> no, the thing was I hadn't, I kept, I probably kept, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 of like really, you know, a Spider-Man number six I have. And I made like original from the yeah. Silver Age and a couple of key issues that really meant something to me. Uh, and then some that I knew that were just going to be valuable as hell or are valuable as hell, but I just wanted to keep them and include them in the collection. And I sold that, I, I sold eight or nine long boxes because I had a comic book business for a while. So I was able to acquire a lot of comic books cheap um, when I was uh, younger. And uh, I just couldn't keep dragging around nine long boxes that I really don't look at. I really never went in. I never hadn't bought a, ever since my daughters were born, I have not bought a comic book probably in a decade. Yeah, You know, like it's not, I wasn't an active collector. So I was like, you know, I got to sell this out and it's a lot harder to sell those things than you think. Now, if you got the time, to, to, to get them graded, put them up on eBay one at a time. it take you a year or two to get rid of everything at, at good prices, or you could knock it all out at once. And I got a really fair price for what I, I put together, but that gave me some, that kind of opened my eyes to like, you know, you know, unless you really love the collection and really love the process of collecting, don't think about it as a money game because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to try to sell out that stuff. You know, again, one at a time, I would I probably could have pulled easily in the high five figures, probably if I would have just done, you know, collections uh, one at a time, grade them, get them all set up, eBay them out. But it's just too much labor, man. It's just too much labor to do.
0: It it sounds crazy and and it might it doesn't sound intuitive. But the, the reason I've been able to hold on to the things that I have is because I'm not precious about them at all. So they sit in a, a, a closet and I don't ever think about them and years go by. <laughs> I mean, your life passes by and you're like, oh, I still have this because I don't think about them. I don't obsess about them. I'm not like, no. oh, my comic book. I'm like you. I haven't bought one. I don't read them anymore. I'm not, I'm a, I was a fan at the time. I even wrote a comic book when I was a kid called The Special X. I don't think I've ever said that on on the mic before. Yeah. But, but those days have kind of passed and I'm just not precious about it but i wanted to go back to your time at the video store because it's funny that that you had this career in film and you end up at a video store so which came first mm-hmm. your your love of story oh, no. and movies video store. or video
1: store yeah was for me it was i was always a fan of movies i mean i, I Obsessed about content I watched more television uh than I mean I watched I was raised on television dude like I my my, my wife's always like you can't let the girls watch so much tv I'm like eh, I ended up okay um so, <laughs> they didn't hear me did they um yeah. but but no I would I it, I I was very literate in the in the world of of storytelling and content just purely because I had just been absorbing it most of my life yeah. and uh
0: What was your favorite movie growing up? What was the one that inspired you the most?
1: The one that, that was the first time I ever, the, uh, the first time I ever thought of being in the film business is after I watched DT. And I was in 82, so I was in second grade, yeah. i had no idea what that was uh, i just decided to go home and start writing a screenplay and i didn't even know what the screenplay was But i just started and basically my the beginning of my screenplay was a young boy meets an alien and they befriend each other and then the are ended so i was already uh, uh you know it was <laughs> it was already plagiarism uh yeah, but <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 but that's the way i started and um and that was the first time i ever thought about it because you have to understand too and i think you do but a lot of people don't understand now that being a filmmaker uh, is not a thing in late 80s, early 90s. That's not a career path. Not really. It is still on the outskirts. It's on the it's an outlier kind of career. It still is to this, this, to a certain extent today, but there's so much more information about it. Like there was nothing. There was no tutorials. There was no YouTube. There was all you had was like the making of Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then whatever you can catch every once in a while. Um, these, there was just no information, education. You really needed to go to a film school to get educated in the process. Uh, so for me, I was like, I never, I'm filmmaking. It wasn't even a thought. Honestly, it wasn't even a thought because it was so outlandish of an idea. I'm like, I'm a kid in Florida. What am I gonna do, be a filmmaker? Like that's not even, it wasn't even a conversation. But yet I, I I was gifted a a camera when I was uh, in high school. My grandpa gave me a camera, a high eight, and then I started shooting stuff and I started playing around and editing between the, the uh, VCRs and stuff. But, but again, because there wasn't a lot of information about storytelling or, or, or that I could make a short film or anything, I, I was doing it instinctually. So right. I created a bunch of shorts for, for, for my, my classrooms and stuff, but I never actually sat down like, Oh, I'm going to go tell a five minute short film. Like it, it, again, wasn't a concept that I was, even if I had someone say, Hey, you could do a short film. I would have done one, but no one around me. I was not in that environment. Uh, but then afterwards I, I graduated high school. I looked around my room. I had 3000 VHSs in my collection. And I said, I guess wow. I'm going to be a direct, I guess I'm going to be a director. And that was, and that was simple as that. I was like, okay, I'm going to be a director. And Told my mom, she was like, okay, let's send you to film school. And uh, originally I went to the, uh, what is that called? Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale, which was a horrendous experience because um, they didn't have a film program. They had a television program. And I was sitting there going, this is garbage. I don't want right. to be in a freaking television studio. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It just wasn't my path. And then they were passing around like like it was weed a prov- <laughs> a, 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 a brochure for Full Sail, uh, yeah. which was like, look, it's a film program. You get to play with cameras and all that stuff. So I went up to film, I went up to um, Full Sail uh, in Orlando, I went to school there, and uh, you know I, I rag on it a little bit because I was like I didn't learn a whole lot because a lot of the stuff that was happening when I went in '95 '96, uh, I think it was like '95 '94 '95 was when I started the technology was changing. So all the stuff I learned was all analog stuff, mostly and nonlinear editing was bare, barely a thing yet. Avid is barely a thing. yeah. So a lot of the stuff I learned was basic stuff that nowadays you can pick up on a YouTube channel fairly easily. Uh, I didn't learn a whole heck of a lot. It was fun as hell. I had a ball. It was a great experience. I learned, uh you know, and I'll tell you a story. I don't even know if I told this story publicly either, but in full sale, I wanted to direct our final project, and I made it very clear to everybody that I wanted to be the, the director since right. I walked in the door. And uh, at the end, they, the, the, what are the politicians of the school picked some other, some other person to direct. And I was like, and everybody around me was like, why aren't you the director? I'm like, I don't know, because my story is too out there or whatever, and they didn't want to do it. So they picked, whoever script they picked, they picked the they became the director, even though that person didn't even want to be a director, nor did they ever do anything afterwards. So I got pissed. I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise a whole bunch of money, and I'm only going to let them use my money if I get to direct. So I went out. So this is how I hustled in, in college. Um, at the time, Full Sail didn't have any coffee, you know bars or any of that crap it was still a young uh, a a young um program so what i did is i brought a little bit of my cubaness up to orlando and i bought this giant cuban like a giant coffee maker so i would mix like bustelo cafe bustelo like a big giant thing of cuban coffee and a big giant thing of maxwell house extra strength and i make this incredible freaking cup of coffee and the classes ran midnight so i would I would uh, be there at midnight one o'clock when they get out for break. Cause they would yeah. run 12 to six in the morning. Uh, and there was, there's just nothing around. So I'd be there with a table with my coffee maker. And then this is what I learned when I was up there. You can go to the local supermarket and go, Hey, I'm a film student. Do you have any day old um, breads, cupcakes, you know, pastries. And I would go every day and they would just give me bags and bags of danishes and breads and, and cupcakes and donuts. And I would just bring them all out free and I would sell them that Brilliant.
0: day. Brilliant. So
1: I, would. so I, I, you know, I, I think we raised around three or 4,000 bucks in the course of, I don't know, me and my partners, probably my, my classmates probably raised, I don't know, three or four grand in, I don't know, probably a few weeks. And then we approached, the the powers that be and we're like look this is all the money here's my plan i broke down the script that they had like i'll shoot it this way i'll do this way and they said no i'm like well we said like well f you we're gonna keep the money we just split the money between the three of us my partners and i and that was it and then i was very upset about that i was like you know what i'm never gonna let this happen again i'm not gonna let someone not let me direct
0: um so someone sort of this feeling of you know, having your agency taken away. And if you want to direct, one of the things that's great about being a director is you have a high agency job on Mm -hmm. set and within and with the film. Um, The the day old bread thing is great. I I used to, (laughs) I I used to uh, bribe my older kids with you could because you could do the same thing at Panera Bread. Mm -hmm. So you could go to Panera and get the day old stuff. Mm-hmm. And then if they would go recycle and do something positive for the community, I'd reward them with the cookies and stuff like that it was a day old, but it tasted fine. And they loved it. It's, it's oh, just, no, a, it's just a brilliant idea. And, and a couple of things you touched on there is just really it all to summarize. It, it's the power of the internet. Like before the internet film wasn't really something your parents wanted to hear. If you said, Hey, I'm going to go into it. Uh, unless they were in film, <laughs> uh, but, but, but with the Internet age, it all changed because there were so many outlets to take your it, it's a concept that everyone's familiar with because we're being sort of bombarded with content today. And someone has to be shooting that content all the time. Um, you did mention that the video store came first. The love for movies came second. So I also I worked at a blockbuster video.
1: Oh, uh, you worked for corporate America, sir. I was mom and pop, sir. I was on the yeah. street. You, you were in were corporate street. America. You yeah. were in corporate America, man, but you had all the copies. God it. I
0: did. <laughs> I did. And, and I have some hilarious blockbuster video stories I'll share with you guys one day. But um, how did the how did the video store uh, influence you to, to go into film
1: and, and sort of make your mind up for you? I just I just was the first time I got access to everything I wanted. So I was watching three, four movies a day. I mean, I emptied, I emptied the store out. I mean, for four years, I was just watching movies on weekends. I would go and just watch, uh, I would watch five, six movies a weekend, seven movies a weekend. I mean, I just, I had no life. So I just, my (laughs) life was movies. It was the truth. I mean, I really, you know, I didn't have any correct activities. I, Uh, I played ball and stuff, but it wasn't like, you know, I just, it was, it was that in Nintendo, it was that in Nintendo. So like, I would watch movies and I go play Zelda and watch movies and go play Super Mario Brothers. And that, and that would, you know, I beat Mike Tyson in five days Uh, on day six, on day six, by the way, my eyes went blurry. I'll never forget this. My eyes literally blurred out because it was of literally eye exhaustion. I thought I was going blind. It was insane, but I still remember how to beat them too. If you threw a game in front of me now, I could probably I could probably take them out.
0: That's uh, a ninja gaden for me.
1: Oh yeah, maybe. Oh yeah. You know. You know what I used to do, dude? I used to record the endings on a VHS so I would beat the game (laughs) I would record the endings and I had this I wish I had it I so I would have I would upload them I would have oh my god it was amazing I would I would VHS all the endings I had Ninja Gaiden I had all the castle the Castlevania Jesus Christ that's forever to beat uh but yeah I recorded all the so I would sit there like with the record button and I'd be playing I'm like and then I would just go at it it was it was crazy, but yeah. But watching all those movies, man, I just fell in love. And I was, ex- and my uh, my boss was a cinephile, um, who the owner of the, of the of the mom and pop was. So he would introduce me to you know Truffaut and Kurosawa and introduce me to a whole bunch of films that I would have never ever seen stuff from the sixties and the seventies mm-hmm. uh, that I just was not aware. Of. Like I didn't know who Martin Scorsese was. I didn't you know. When I got in, I think Predator which arguably is the greatest action movie of all time, uh, (laughs) was the hot thing, you know, and lethal weapon. And uh, it was 86, 87. So I got in around 87. I was 14 and I became the manager of the store at 50 because I was such a go getter hustler. So my, my, the, the boss said, you could here's a key. So I'd be, and then I started, I was the boss of 21, 21 year olds, which was fantastic uh and it was and it was a good it was also a good learn uh, a good learning ground for being a director because you had to work with older people and you had to work with you know just just organizing it all so it was a great training ground for me on so many levels uh and then when i left i just uh i just went to film full school uh, for film school and then off off to the races i went
0: i don't think it's any secret that you are a high ingenuity sort of high agency person. Tell us the Hollywood video
1: story. Hollywood video. Oh, the Hollywood video story. (laughs) So right before I moved to LA, I, I, I was, you know, I was looking for a little extra cash. So what I did was uh, at the time, all the Hollywood videos were going out. This is before blockbuster went bankrupt. So it was, everything was on those, everything was on those way out. So, you know, you see all these going out of sales signs, uh, going out of business signs. So one day, one of, Hollywood videos uh, in the area was going out of business. So I walked in real quick and I was like, oh, well, you got a whole bunch of DVDs here. Let me, I'll buy a bunch of them. So I paid like, I don't know, a hundred bucks for a bunch of DVDs and with the, with the intention to sell them. And my girlfriend at the time, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to sell these. She's like, all right. Uh, And um, this is when it was early on in my wife's and I's relationship. So she didn't (laughs) kind of grasp who I was just yet. Yeah. And then all of a sudden about about a month later I had 900 bucks. And she's like what 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 happened here? And I'm like, yeah, I took 100, made it into 900 selling DVDs on on Amazon and eBay. And she's like, "Hmm, that seems interesting." I'm like, "Yeah, it does, doesn't it?" So then we started to go around town and start buying out like you know, big chunks of all these Hollywood videos all around Miami, we'd drive and we'd buy them and I'd just start selling them. And that's actually what kept me alive for wow. a while because the film industry was dying in 2000, for me at least, 2006, 2007. Uh, it was really, really bad. Uh, I couldn't get work, it, it, you know, it was, I really was hungry. I just couldn't really get a whole lot of work. And uh, and I was just tired and, 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 I, and I was like, I got it, this is right before the move. So I was like, I had to do something. So a few weeks before I moved to L.A., the gem of the, the, the ground jewel of my Hollywood video wants was the one around the corner for me, yeah. which had not gone down yet. And as I'm driving by, I see the go out of business sign. I was like, babe, it's happening. So she's like, all right, go do what you got to do. And I walked in and I said, can I talk to the manager, please? And this is early on in the in the going out of business sale. And she's like, can I help you? And I'm like, I'd like to, uh, like to buy all your DVDs and games. They're like, I'm sorry. It's like, I just, I want your whole store. How much for the whole store? And he's like, all right, let's, I go, do you take discover? they think like, yes. I'm like, great. <laughs> so, um, I, we sat down and we made a deal and I bought the whole store for, I don't know, I think about ten, eleven thousand dollars I just dropped boom. And on the credit card and a lot of people would think it was crazy, but I'm like, I knew that I could, I could turn it around. And, and I bought everything. Like I bought the good, the bad, the ugly video games, GameCube. I mean, I bought everything. And, uh, and then I, I told my wife, I'm like, well, I don't know if we have a job when we land in in LA, but at least I know we can make a living selling these things for at least the first six months till we get up on our feet. Uh, The ironic thing was, is when we got to LA, I was already booked to edit and uh, edit and color a feature film. And then an old client of mine called me up and I, so I was working, I literally had to rush to get my system up so I could start working in my apartment in North Hollywood. And my wife got a job three weeks later and then the economy collapsed and we, yeah. but, but we, but we completely coasted, you know, thank God we completely ghosted, uh, well, coasted through the whole thing.
0: Well, it's and then amazing by, how the universe responds to someone who puts effort out into the world.
1: Yeah, there's no question. And then we ended up for the next year selling those DVDs, um, And I, I don't know, probably made about 40 grand off that. So, um, but, but there's a, there's a, there's, and this is something I want to clarify for people when it comes to hustle and when it comes to that kind of ingenuity at a certain point in your life, buying something for a dollar and selling it for $10 one at a time makes sense. But as you get older or your, your life situation starts to change, that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of hustle, and it's also a tremendous amount of time that it takes. It's it's labor-intensive to do. That's why Gary Vee doesn't generally do that as much anymore. Mm-hmm. He does it for fun for his channel, but he doesn't need to do it anymore. Right. So at a certain point, you need to start thinking bigger. And you just got to start thinking. And I actually, my I don't know if you know this story or not, and that, this is when my my wife called me on it, and she checked me. About a year into our time in in LA it was Christmas. I think it was that first Christmas or something. And I figured out that if you go to GameStop and bought this video game on GameStop, it was being sold for fifteen dollars on GameStop. But if you go to Amazon and you saw it, it was being sold for sixty dollars on Amazon. So I said, "Hmm, that's a good turnaround. That's some that's, <laughs> some, arbit- that's some arbitrage. It's arbitrage. Uh, yeah. Arbitrage." So what I'm going to do is, I didn't even think you would think. Well, he went and bought like twenty of them. Nope. What I did is I would put them on sale on Amazon and then when an order would come in, I would go and buy it on GameStop and then GameStop would just fulfill it for me and send it straight to the customer. So I just sat sat back and and about, I think, 30 or 40 transactions later, GameStop stopped me. They're like, wait a minute, what the hell's going on? We keep sending this out (laughs) to different people and it's the same credit card. What's going on? So I think it was 30 or 40 before they shut my account down. And then I told my wife, I'm like, Hey, babe, we'll go get some Christmas money and this and that. And then she's like, that's great. But we didn't move to LA for you to do this crap. We could have stayed in Florida. You could have kept doing this. You're here for your film career. You're here to get off the ground. You're here to think bigger than this. And that was the first time that I got checked on it. I was like, Oh, okay. I don't have to hustle like this anymore. It's always good to have that energy, but I don't have to think this way. That's called, you know, it's a different mentality. Um, you know, Rich people or people who are extremely successful in business don't think that way. Right. They think much bar- larger. They think much bigger. The concepts are the same, but the execution's bigger. So, you know, then I, you know, I opened up an online business years later, which is Indie Film Hustle. And now my business runs for me 24, seven, seven days a week with very little labor in the actual execution of sales because it's mostly digital assets.
0: Right, you build, so you built such a good infrastructure, sort of tight infrastructure, that it allows for the passive income to flow through. And, and kudos to your wife, by the way, because yeah, yeah. so many times that you know we hear it's it's one or the other. It's like, hey, my family either really supported me, or my significant other is sort of passive aggressively preventing me from being as great as I want to be or right. doing things I want to do. And right. and how do I deal with it? And so, not everybody gets that person who's really like, "Let's move across the country. I'm supporting you. Hey, here's a kick in the ass that you need to, to make sure you're focused no. on the right thing." So uh, it's amazing. And and I even go back to your grandfather gifting you that camera. I would say about 30% of every director or cinematographer that's been on this podcast has been gifted a camera. And oh, I can yeah. just think of I can just think of you know Chad McLaren and and um, uh, a few other people. Um, that just come right to mind, like these stories, like, yeah, that was it. Uh, Drew Maynard, like people who just, oh, someone said, here's a camera. Or, go, or they go, just go go or, do something.
1: Or they grab the old VHS or the old Super A camera that no one's using in the house, you know, the family camera yeah. back in the day. And it, it's hard for people to understand now because all cameras are now your iPhone. Yeah, on your
0: phone. Yeah. But, but, there's is, some, but there's something about getting a gift from a family member and someone green. who's sort of because uh, I, th- I thought of Chad right away, McLaren, because it was also a grandfather. There's something about, like, I'm bestowing this to you. And, like, Logan Christopher is another guy who comes to my, oh, here, I'm bestowing this camera to you. What will right. you do with it? What, what mm-hmm. will happen? Um, I, there's something to that I, I, I love. Um, you did mention indie film hustle. You know, most filmmakers get out of film school, or they don't go to film school at all, and they and they want to go out. And, th- and The big dream is actually to be put on somebody's film or get hired to be part of some team. How and when did you make the decision to stop working for others and go out on your own?
1: And well, how, how, did you- how did you
0: how did you pull off that transition?
1: So, I mean, so everybody knows I, I got my start in post. So when I got out of film school, I, I figured out pretty quickly I did not want to be an onset set PA. Uh, so I, I started learning editing. Uh, I learned the Avid, and then I went out as a freelancer and then just started making ridiculous money when i was a kid uh who had no idea what to do with money so i spent a whole lot of it and lost a whole lot of it almost went bankrupt and it was a whole bunch of things um but uh as an editor look literally there's a this is the golden age this is still the 90s so there's still a whole lot of money floating around and, <laughs> and final cut hadn't come out yet and you know i was still making 50 to 75 bucks an hour as an editor yeah. doing like promos and you know, music videos in Miami. It was a whole other world back then. But, uh, but I did that for about 20 years. I opened up my own post house. Uh, I've been an editor, online editor, post supervisor, VFX supervisor, colorist. Uh, so I've done everything in post and then I would go off and direct commercials or music videos, or I would include my post production as a bid for my directing jobs and things like that. So it would help me get directing jobs. So I did all of that for a long time. And, uh, about three years ago, I would say, three, three and a half years ago, uh, I turned to my wife and I said, I don't think I have to do this anymore. I think Indie Film Hustle is doing well enough that I don't I can I can retire. Uh, <laughs> and, and I know great, it's hard to thing. hear when yeah. I say that, when I say it yeah. out loud, it's like, yeah, but I was like, I'm going to retire. I mean, I literally got an email yesterday. Someone asking me, hey, can you color this movie for me? I'm like, I'm retired. Uh, and here's another person that you can that you can use. So I just left it. I let it go because I was able to build up indie film hustle to a place where, um, in Los Angeles, uh, with a family living in Burbank, uh, I could afford to live and pay my bills. So the company was doing well enough that I could do that. And, um, and uh, it was great. And, and not, not having to work. Look, I have wonderful, had wonderful experiences working with clients uh, throughout my career. I I've learned so much from them. Uh, I have stories upon stories about what happens in a post how in a post room, you know, you spend eight at nine, 10 hours with people weeks on end. You can, you can hear some stuff yeah. uh, and, and see some stuff. Uh, but I've seen the good the bad and the ugly of, of the filmmaking process just from my point of view as a post production person let alone on set let alone through my own uh life experiences and things like that but once I decided to stop I just stopped and it was a slight it was a slight bit scary at the beginning because again there's right. that back of the head you're just like fear you know if, so, if someone shows up with 20 grand you're going to turn that down and I say yeah I am because it's okay. I might not make that 20 grand this week. Like I would have, if I would have done the post job, but my time is better spent building something else. And also as you get older, you, you start realizing you, you want to be happier in life. Yeah. yeah. And the things that you put up with in your twenties and thirties, you probably aren't going to put up with in your forties if you have a choice. So once I got into my forties, I was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, I don't have to bring along some, young filmmaker who has an ego and has no idea what they're doing. And they're asking me to fix their movie again. Um, you know, I, 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 out of every 10 movies or projects I would work on, one was like someone who really understood what was going on. And I enjoyed working with them. Um, but even most of the times it would be just me fixing other people's problems, especially at the rate, at the bottom, at the, at the, the budget levels I was working at, which was like, you know, million and below half million, quarter million. Right you know, the quality in LA wasn't just, it just, and you could, I you know, i my MDB and you could check it all out. I loved all of them. I'm not trying to be negative towards any of them, but some of them, you know, had issues. Uh, and a lot of them had egos that were out the door. And I was like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'd rather just do what I'm doing and helping people with indie film hustle and bulletproof screenwriting and everything else I do. So I just really rather not, um, do it anymore. And that's exactly what I did, but I'll direct, I'll go out and work with a client um to direct a, a commercial or a music video or a show that's a different conversation that's a collaboration as yeah. uh, not as much of a client-based scenario it's more of a collaboration and they're hiring me for my skill set and so on and so forth um but i'm more much more interested in doing my own thing nowadays but i've been but oh. i've built that infrastructure <laughs> to be able to do that and that takes time it takes time to do that
0: Exactly. And uh, hindsight is 2020, but I think we're all better off for it. Uh, Your first book, and by the way, maybe you developed this in Queens too, but but you just have a penchant for being a natural marketer and someone who titles things well. Like, how do you not pick up a book called Shooting for the Mob? I mean, you have to pick (laughs) that book up. That's just a great title. But it is based on a true filmmaking story. Uh how did you get involved with the mob and and how deep <laughs> is the mob actually involved in Hollywood movie making? I've heard lots of stories, read a lot of pieces, but just wanted to get your take. Um, is there a story that you lived and survived then that, that you can share?
1: Yeah, exactly. This is stuff I could talk about publicly. Um no, I listen, when I was 26, I was approached by a reformed ex-mobster who had spent time in prison. He was a real mobster, a uh, real gangster. And uh, he wanted to tell the story of his life. Um, I was green, but I wasn't that green. He wanted to give me 20 million bucks to make the movie. It was, you know, local. Uh, and um, it just it just seemed that uh, it just kept, kept going and going. And the guy seemed legit. So I just kept going down the road. And by the time I realized that there was something a little fishy going on, uh, it was too late. I was in the web. So it was very difficult for me to get out of that web. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also I had a whole lot of issues. I was young. I didn't know anything. I didn't have my self-confidence, you know, and he, he, he was a, he was a predator in that sense. So he bullied me into staying and threatened me on a daily basis. And uh, mm-hmm. he needed, he needed me to keep the ball rolling. So we just, I know, I, I just stuck doing this movie with him. And um, that story of just making a movie for an ex-mobster, like, I mean, I shot a, a teaser- of the movie with like real guys on set with guns, real guns on set. Like, it wasn't like, yeah, I mean, there was, you see, like, they just, they just, they just showed, they just showed up from, you know, the day's work to, you know, to shoot some stuff. The, the, the infatuation that mobsters have with Hollywood is as long as Hollywood has been around. Um, I don't believe there's a lot of mafia shit going on in Hollywood today. It's just not, that's not the world it's very corporate it's like there's not a lot of mob stuff going on in vegas like it's just become too corporate it, 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 at one point there might have been more of that but nowadays it's not as much it's just maybe in the indie world a little bit more and especially if you start going over to eastern europe and that kind of world that's a different conversation but the mob as we know it in america is that the italian mob the mm-hmm. you know the the godfather the goodfellas those that kind of mob which is the, the italian mob is the one i was uh, involved with um But anyway, that story is really interesting. But then the more interesting story is that Hollywood took him seriously, and I was flown out to L.A. multiple times. And I met the biggest movie stars of the world at the time, billion-dollar producers, uh, the head of CAA. I'm at the Chateau Marmont. I'm at the Ivy. I'm at Spago's having these meetings. I'm 26. I'm just going, Jesus Christ, what the – this has to be – this has to be my, my shot is, I mean, this is my mariachi, right? This is right. my, this is my clerks. This is my slacker. This has got to be, I mean, I'm sitting across, you know, the table from Batman yeah. and, um, literally the actor who played Batman well, went out and flew out to his, you know, 25,000 acre estate. Uh, and, uh, he's like, Hey kid, I love you. I want to work with you and I want to be in your movie. I'm like, I, what? So it was a very, it, it's a great, um, Allegory of what not to do when you're chasing your filmmaking dream, uh, or chasing any dream, in the in the amount of abuse you put together that you take, and all this kind of stuff. So I really wanted to put the book out to help people to kind of have them understand that no matter how bad the situation is, you can choose to leave that situation. I did not choose to leave. I was let go eventually. Thank God. Uh, I'm not sure how long I would have stayed if I would if he wouldn't have let me go. But after about a year. Um, he, he had mercy on me and let me out and just like, all right, you can go now, kid. And I was, I almost, that, that crushed me creatively, financially. Um, it, it, destroyed me. I didn't, I hid, that's when I opened up my comic book business on eBay with a buddy of mine and I hid in a garage for two years sorting comic books. Like did I Did the movie ever
0: get, did you have to hide?
1: No, no, I never had okay. No, a lot of people think that like it's it's more scandal. It's not. It's not. I I wasn't chased. I wasn't. Nobody. I'm not in witness relocation. Obviously, I'm not in witness relocation. Um, So no, nothing like that. Um, But the movie didn't. You said it didn't get made. No, no, I never got made because it couldn't get made because of the because of the the person involved. He was just he was yelling and screaming at agents and threatening their lives. He just didn't understand how the game was played. You just can't do stuff like that. And if you do it once or twice to a couple of big agents, the word gets around town and you're done.
0: You're Done. You're done.
1: Yeah. yeah, you're done. Then now you're on the outskirts, you know, talking to actors on the outskirts and agents. So if you're talking to an agent who will actually talk to you, that's probably saying something. You know, all sorts of stuff like that. But during the heyday, before the town knew what this guy was about, I was meeting some of the biggest movie stars in the world. Um, I mean, it was insane the stories I had. And most of them are in most of them are in the book. Uh, I changed the name of everybody uh, that I met in the book. So you know, it's Johnny Hollywood and, you know, yeah. call yeah. one of them T-Rex. Hey, you know, look, look, it's not, if you look into it a little deeper, you'll probably figure out who it is, but I did change their name. I mean, I call one of them T-Rex. So you can figure out who that is. Right. Um, a big movie star with the T-Rex. So. Right. Uh, so- <laughs> right. Right, right, right.
0: So, so, so yeah, I mean, well, I'll say this. As big of a town as LA is, it's a really small town when it comes to your you know, your reputation at the top. Uh when you're when you're at the top levels. And I do film primarily here in Nashville. And we have such a small tight film community. You just can't be an oh. asshole here. No. And it, like like every everyone will know and it'll 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 go fast for you. Uh, go downhill fast for you, I should I should yep. say. Yep. Uh you wrote a second book after this book, Film Entrepreneur. Uh, I have the book on audio. I listened to it. Um, uh, upon, I was one of the people who bought in those first 10 days and I have it. I listened to it oh, over, you. over a year ago and it was great. And, uh, it made me think what, what has to, you know, first, why do you want to write books? And then two, what's more difficult writing a book or shooting a movie, shooting a film? They, they both seem like pretty, pretty mm. steep
1: climbs. Shooting for the mob was the most difficult book, I, most big, difficult thing I've ever done because I had to go back to the darkest place of darkest time in my life and live there for months to pull out that story. So that was our, that book was the most difficult thing I've ever had to do honestly in my life, other than maybe going through the experience of shooting for the mob. Yeah. Um, but writing film entrepreneur was super easy for me. Uh, I, it flowed, I was done with a rough draft in I don't know, maybe a month or two. I, I just, it just like, it just, it just completely came out of me. I vomited it out. Uh, I was, I moved so quickly on that book. I was shocking how fast I was writing that book. Um, in my current book I'm writing, I, I, I wrote, I, I haven't been writing it as much. I've been on and off because of the other things I've been doing in life. But, um, but when I write it, I just, it just, just comes out. It flowed. Whereas shooting for the mob, it flowed, and then I would get to that place where, like, ah, oh, gotta go to that dark place. Let me just skip that chapter. And, right. and, and so, I, I mean, I literally cried while I wrote that book because you're just going back to the darkest times in your life to do that. It was very difficult to do. Uh, and then doing the audiobook, it took me like, I did the, I wrote, look, I wrote Shooting for the Mob, put it out. Then I wrote another book and an audiobook, and I built a website and podcast and YouTube channel for that book before I went back to do the audiobook of Shooting for the Mob. And then it took me, Forever to finish that book because it was just again I have to go read it and then go through it again. So I was like the idea of performing I, the hardest part of your life. Oh yeah, and and being the vo- and then being the voice of like my nemesis, like ah, you know, I talk like this, you know, like and I'm doing all these different voices inside the book. um, Was was it's, it was different? It was difficult, but no, I mean, it depends on the movie. It depends on the project. Movies for me at this point have been very easy to do. They, I mean, the last movie I shot in four days. Edited it in about a week because I had very little footage because I shot in four days because it was the, shot at Sundance. Um, it moved very very quickly for me. So those things don't bother me. I don't know which is more difficult. Shooting for the mob was the most difficult one, but <clears throat> writing a book is super. Uh, writing a book is a lot easier than writing a screenplay. Screenplays are uh, they're, they're they're beasts. They're absolute beasts. Writing a book so much easier. You just get to just. And screenwriting, you're just like, oh, what is the, the, what is the mean? Why do I need that the there? Like, it's, it's brutal. It's absolutely. It's like a haiku. It's the haiku of the creative arts. Like it's, it's horrible. It's horrible to write a screenplay.
0: Yeah. It's funny because everybody can write a haiku, but very few people can write a good haiku. haiku.
1: Everyone can write a screenplay, but very few right. can write a good screenplay.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And we are going to talk about on the corner of ego and desire. There's some technical things I'd, I'd love to, to talk to you about, but sure. we mentioned earlier about just this um, distribution and, and we want to talk, I want to talk a little bit about it uh, because you also give a lot of advice on uh, through all your different mediums and, and well listened to advice, you know, based on your experience with Distribber mm-hmm. and other distributors, what are your thoughts now currently on self-distribution versus finding a distributor for an indie project? You know, is there a specific set of criteria that would sway a filmmaker in either direction? What, what are your thoughts? Is, and, and just to give the audience some context Distriber was you know um they were going to be
1: they were the biggest they they were the greatest thing ever for a long time they were an aggregator that allowed filmmakers to self-distribute their films and they would put them on the platforms for them like itunes and amazon and all that kind of stuff and uh and it was great for a long time they were around for about eight years nine years so it was great and i was a big proponent of them but then one day uh i started hearing and seeing things that weren't correct and when i found out the truth about what was going on at Distributor, meaning that they were gonna go under, millions of dollars were gonna get lost, thousands of films were gonna get locked up. Uh, I felt that I needed to come out publicly and say something about it, and I did. And I publicly uh, broke the story, and then uh, IndieWire and uh, El- Variety, Hollywood Reporter, um, LA Times, I was on the cover of the LA Times entertainment section. Um, and I became this poster child for this the, you know, distributor scoring filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And I took that and, it, you know, it was very, I had a lot of pressure on me because I had a lot of people looking at me to like, what do I do? What do I do? I do. And I hadn't had that happen before, but I was like, well, this is what you signed up for. So let's go. And I just, you know, built out a platform to help them and I would educate them and I would tell them what was going on. And I was in talks with the the, the company that was handling the bankruptcy slash whatever they were calling it. And uh, so, yeah, I have a very, Unique um, perspective on distribution. Uh, I think that the future for filmmakers is the film, independent filmmaking is film entrepreneurship. There's just no question. You have to be an entrepreneurial filmmaker. There's just no other way around it. If you're going to trust the traditional distribution path, you really need to have good partners who you who you trust and a good distribution company that will actually pay you and do things but the, the the landscape's changing so so rapidly that you know what was once really hot a year ago is not hot now and is not the way filmmakers are making money now so things are changing so rapidly so fast that the distributors don't even know what they're doing they don't just they, don't, they I've talked to them they don't know they're like well this is what i think is going to happen mm-hmm. and that's why we're asking for 15 years for your to hold on to your movie so we can maybe make our money back down the line when some other thing comes up that we can start generating revenue with. Um, but it's a brutal thing. I think that it's a case-by-case basis on a filmmaker for and, and film. If you're going to go down the entrepreneurial path or film entrepreneurial path or the um, traditional path, there's no reason why you can't do both. So I'm I'm a proponent of creating revenue streams outside of the traditional model that you control. While using the traditional model to get your film out there and market it, so like with a movie like mine, like Ego and Desire, I truly didn't care how much money it made, you know, through exhibition. Yeah, it makes it makes some money and it's made money, but uh, but for me, I mean, it also cost three thousand bucks, so I, you know, it's not a big loss for me. But the thing was that I I was building revenue streams outside of it. So Ego and Desire is basically hand crafted for my audience. Uh, and I put it out there for my audience. There is product placement inside of the movie, which is myself as in the podcast. So if you're a filmmaker watching this and you see about this podcast and you see me, chances are that you might go and investigate what's going on with Indie Film Hustle. And then once you get in there, there's a thousand revenue streams that I can create. Also, there's a thousand ways I can serve you. And the other thing is uh, you can be listening to me for free for the, the next 10 years and not pay me a dime. Right. And I'm good. And I'm gold with that. That's fine. I get taken care of. No, I'm good. I'm here to provide a service. And then if you want me to go, you know, want to go to another level, then there's things you can pay for. But I, the amount of stuff I give away for free. I mean, I mean, I had, I had interviews with some of the biggest directors in the world, which I could easily charge $2 a listen for, you know, would you pay $2 to listen to Rick Rick Linkletter for two hours? Yeah. Yeah, probably. But that's not my game. I want to help filmmakers. I want to give that information out to them for free as much as I can. And then hopefully they'll reciprocate with uh, when they're ready to purchase any online education or services or things like that. They'll think of me. And that's that's the whole business model. That's the whole business model.
0: Most filmmakers take their films out to festival as sort of the genesis of distribution, uh, that model. And I I totally agree with this idea. Uh, we we had a concept called filmmaker startup and it was kind of very similar to, to film entrepreneur because it's the same idea. It's like, I, I think, look, you're making an LLC out of your movie. So it's already a business. So now you need to understand, you know, there are so many ways to monetize uh, your film, but you can't make the mistake that gets your rights taken away uh, or, or puts you uh, boxes you into a corner where uh, you have to wait a period of time before you can get rights back or you don't have the ability to go and and be high agency, as we've said probably too many times in this conversation. But that's big. But it all kind of starts with this festival strategy. And what I notice is there'll be two or three that someone picks and it's always like, here's our moonshot festival we're going to try to get into. Here's the one that's local that we think we can win. And here's the one that's based on my genre. But the cool thing about you is when I look at your festival, uh, attendance and laurels, they're from all over the world. Um, so what, what, what festival strategy are you now a big proponent of, uh, is it still a global game?
1: I mean, I listen, I love festivals. I think if you haven't been, uh, at a festival with a movie, and walk that red carpet, uh, you got to do it. It's so much fun. I've done it hundreds of times in my career. Uh, it's a lot of fun. The power of the film festival is not nearly as powerful as it was in the 90s. And I think that's what a lot of filmmakers still think, that they feel, they still think that having laurels will will help them sell their movie. Right. Um, I'm here to tell you that there's a handful of festivals that mean anything to the bottom line. And there's like, I can count them on one hand. Every All the other festivals are awesome. And they're wonderful and they do great work and they, you know, but it's not the end all be all that it was in the 90s. In the 90s, it was all about, you know, what festivals are you in? What awards did you win? the landscape, the the content landscape has changed so rapidly and so much in that time that now, uh, you know, I worked on Sundance projects that did not get sold. Um, I know of Sundance projects that did not did not get sold. Just because you get to Sundance doesn't mean anything. Just because you get you win South by Southwest doesn't mean anything. Or Toronto, um, you know, there's there's a there's a handful of the festivals that mean something, uh, but they also mean something for the right kind of film. You got a horror, action, or genre film. No one cares about a festival. No one. You got a sports movie. No one cares. No one. No one cares. No one cares. So unless it's one of the top five, don't think that it's going to get you a distribution deal or get you 5 million bucks up front. That, that, that doesn't exist anymore. It really doesn't. There's very few outlying situations that that works on anymore. So
0: is it better just to take the moonshot entries on the five you're talking about? And if you don't get in, go ahead and start that entrepreneur process.
1: It depends on, it, it depends on the project, depends on where the filmmaker is in their career. Like I said, if you have not gone down that path, go down that path. It's fun. It's you'll learn something, especially if you're in smaller markets, if you can get into your local film festivals, like the Nashville, uh, international Nashville film festival is amazing. Um, you know, down here, you know, in LA, obviously there's a thousand, Mm -hmm. uh, Texas, there's a ton. Uh, it it depends on where you are, but even if you're going out of state, you're going to meet people, you're going to learn things that you won't learn in your, in your own markets. You know, you go to the LA film festival and take a bunch of their conferences or something like that, or go to Holly shorts and, uh, you know, for the short films and, and, listen to their conferences, you're going to just learn stuff that you're just not going to learn in your market. So there's a tremendous amount of value still in film festivals, but don't go into it thinking that that's going to help you sell. It won't. Now, if you have a drama or a, you know, something that makes sense that laurels would help in the selling of it, like it's an art film, it's, there's a prestige, then that's a different conversation. So it's really a case by case basis, but don't think that it's the end all be all that it was once was because before, like I said, you got into Tribeca, you got into Toronto, you automatically got distribution. Those days are gone. There's just too much content, too much competition. Um, now I see movies with stars, with stars, with faces that are having difficult times getting distribution. So it's, it's a lot different than it used to be.
0: Yeah, there's a whole bottleneck of indie films that are made between $3 million and $10 million in the U.K. now that the BBC can't sell. And these are really great films, but the, but what is the subject matter? What is the market? And you know what I add to the, I would also add to your advice just to say, don't put the festival above you. Uh, no, absolutely. One, one thing that festivals do that's unfortunate is they prop up sharks and every single festival you go to, there's one person that's there that's full of shit and they're going to be on a panel. They're going to be in some absolutely. room. Absolutely, Absolutely. And you think they're there, because the festival brought them there. So they've got to be legit. No, they do not.
1: I got, so, I got, taken, for ten, I got taken for 10 grand back in the day from a, from a producer's rep that, that screwed me over from exactly that reason.
0: And it was because it was at a festival and, you, and, and so you have that sort of built-in trust. Correct. Yeah, it's, Correct. That's, that's incredible. And uh, yeah, we'll have to talk about that one day, uh, maybe over cocktails. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's always a, the, the thing in indie film, I'm going to make my first feature film. I want to be successful. It's got to be a horror. Is that still the case? No, is horror still the best genre for indie film. Absolutely not, not. What what is
1: the the story that makes something that means something to you? So there's two things you're going. Are you doing this for your for art? Or are you doing this for commerce? Horror. Everyone does horror. It's it's a saturated marketplace. Don't think that horror is going to help you. It's not unless you've got something very specific or something very cool or something that makes you stand above the crowd. Horror is not the answer do as a filmmaker, you got to tell the story that means something to you. And if it's more on the artistic personal side, keep that budget as low as humanly possible on the corner of ego and desire. I would have not had, I would have not felt comfortable taking 50 grand for it or a hundred grand for it. I just wouldn't have, because that's not the, it was very niche. It was aimed to filmmakers. Like it's, It's not a film that's general market, generally speaking, so I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. But it was my art. It was my art experiment, really. I didn't even know if I had a movie when I got on the plane from Sundance. I just didn't. I I hoped I had a movie, but I didn't know. So you definitely should do something that means something to you. And if you do, keep that budget as low as humanly possible. Try to stay away from dramas because dramas are extremely difficult to sell. So try to stay within action horror, um, thrillers. Um, if you're going to do a comedy, be careful because those are tough to sell and they don't travel well. So there's, there's certain genres, but just honestly, if, if, if you think you can do something different, uh, and it means something to you and you truly believe it, then do it. But just make sure you keep that budget as low as humanly possible while still maintaining the highest quality, uh, production as possible.
0: I want to talk about it on the corner of ego and desire, uh, It took you 20 years to make your first feature film, This Is Meg, and just a few years to turn around and make On the Corner of Ego and Desire. The cool thing about this film is you shot it at Sundance, and so from a technical standpoint, I'm curious, sort of, what did you have to change, you and your team have to change and prepare for shooting at Sundance versus on a traditional set environment? What's sort of the genesis of the idea? Like, how did you come up with this idea and get the rights to do it?
1: So um, there's no rights, first of all. Secondly, um, <laughs> there's completely, completely gorilla the entire thing. Rights. You're adorable with the rights. Um, no, my friend, my friend had a million uh, dollar uh, condo on the bottom of Park City at the bottom of, uh, of Main Street. And we were going to go there. I was going to do interviews there like I did the year before. And, and I said, I think, I don't know who came up with the idea, but I, I like, hey, let's shoot a movie. And they're like, okay, um, let's shoot a movie. Uh, they're like, what's it about? And I'm like, I don't know. Let's make it about three filmmakers trying to sell their movie at Sundance and let's make it the <laughs> most ridiculous filmmakers. Every story, every ego-driven trip, every mistake. Let's make this a cautionary tale, but like a satire. And, uh, my producing partner, Adam Bowen, uh, said, sure, let's do this. And two months later we were at Sundance and I cast over Skype. Uh, I never met my actors personally. So when I first saw them was the first time I saw them at Sundance, we got there. Uh, I wrote a scriptment. So it was a, a very structured outline to the entire process, uh, went out and just started shooting. And I had been to Sundance for eight, nine times. I love going to, I love going to Park City. Okay. Uh, I love going to Park City and I love going at, during Sundance because it's just a wonderful time. It's a, it's the it's a playground for filmmakers. It's just a wonderful experience if you even if you have no movie there. I've never had a movie there. So uh it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And uh I just knew everything. I knew where to go. So I was already like, oh, I'll shoot over here in this corner, yeah. I'll shoot in that, I'll go into that restaurant. And we just ran around with a black magic 1080p pocket camera. <laughs> With two lenses, um, um, uh, a, so it was me, my DP, my sound guy that's it, and a buddy of mine who would like kind of just help with whatever we needed, and mm. my three actors. And we just ran around Sundance shooting stuff, and we were just like, okay, let's start shooting this, let's start shooting that, boom, 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 and, we, and that was all we did. And I just ran around and I just said, no one's going to stop me because. There's Sundance and I'm going to have a really little camera. But once I got, I was really, I was nervous. I was like, are they going to stop me from making like, but no one cared because everyone's got camera. I'm like, I could have shot this with the Alexa. No one would have even looked at me twice because it's in the middle of Sundance. So no one questions it. But I shot scenes in Sundance headquarters while the festival is going on. And I would tell people, get out of my shot. (laughs) My DP was like, dude, we're not supposed to be here. I'm like, I don't care. The director and me like, You're ruining my shot. Get out of my shot. Uh, I would do that kind of stuff all the time. I mean, we lit with, it was all natural lighting. I think we had one light in the interior. And I think you can even see the shot where I'm interviewing one of my, my uh, actors, because there's moments in the movie where they turn to the camera and talk um, with the, the light off the iPhone. I'm like, we need a fill here. Let's go here. My DP is like hitting record and holding his iPhone and getting light on his face. Like it was that, that was the kind of True Skeleton. Oh, it was, it was great. But it looks, it's probably one of the most beautiful things I've ever shot. Uh, I I blew it up to 2K for a DCP to be played at the Chinese theater. And I had never seen it. And when I walked in, I saw it, I was like, Oh my God, this looks gorgeous. And I wanted to shoot it with the 1080p because I love that camera. I love this, the aesthetics of that camera, but it's a super 16 uh, sensor. So I wanted to kind of kick it back to that nineties indie film movement style. So it was a little bit grainy, a little bit clerks and mariachi style. So, you know, we did that. And the lenses I used were vintage lenses. And I mean, it was very, it was very um, strategic on how we did it, but we shot the whole thing in four days. I would stop shooting. and I'm like, guys, I got to go do interviews. So like you got three hours, go, go do something. Like we didn't like shoot all day, every day. Like that was total yeah. of 30. I think it was total of 36 production hours, uh, a total. And insane. it was insane. It's insane. It was insane. I, I can't even believe we did it. It was ridiculous. It was so much cool fun. super cool idea.
0: Super cool idea. And you're also super cool, Alex. And and uh, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, I have some shotgun questions I want to ask. Sure. And then we'll get you out of here. Yeah, uh, yeah man. This is a this is speed round. Go for uh, it. All right. What's the best piece of advice you've gotten in your career and who did it come from?
1: Um, Richard Linkletter said this on my show. And I think it's an amazing piece of advice to everyone listening. However long you think it's going to take, it's going to be twice as long and it's going to be twice as hard. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, however long you think it's going to be to do whatever you're going to do. Twice as long, twice as hard.
0: If you could be reincarnated as uh, someone you admire and love for their technical skill or aesthetic eye, who would it be? Uh, Does it art, art, or or just anybody? I was thinking in film, but
1: it can be anybody. That's an interesting take. Um, in film, Kubrick. Hmm. There's no question; it would be Kubrick. In life, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. Who is that? The educator. Uh, Yogananda was, uh, he is the author. He was a yogi. Um, for, he was a yogi that brought yoga and meditation to the, to the West.
0: Oh no, I know this. Yes. I know this person. Sorry. Yes. yes, yes. I have, I have a book. Uh, yeah, it's called autobiography.
1: It's autobiography of a yogi. Have a yogi. Yeah. Yeah. I have yeah, that yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's uh that I would, I would like to be him. Uh, if I could come back just for what he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard for people to understand what he did and how he did it, but he brought meditation and yoga to the united states in 1920s as an indian yogi can you imagine an indian yogi walking around boston
0: yeah. <laughs> no i can't talking
1: up talking about chakras and talking about yeah. yoga and meditation and inner light and spirituality it was like an alien walking around till he went to El- t- till he went to California and everyone was like, welcome. And everyone's like, okay. Uh, and then he <laughs> took off from there. But what he did was, uh, you know, it, 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 it's amazing. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big, big, um, big, big fan.
0: Yeah. If we get to do a round two, we, we have to dig into, to meditation. It's it's been, oh. a, it's been a big part of my life in the last, I would say, uh, Six years, and I Mm -hmm. haven't been completely disciplined on it. I go in and out, but when I'm really disciplined on it, the creativity and the clarity is unrivaled. Uh, What are the biggest creative and business mistakes you
1: see newcomers making in film? Um, Not thinking of this business, not thinking of this business as a business and thinking of it as an art. Um, There's the word show and the word business, and the word business has twice as many letters as the word show. And you need to understand and respect that.
0: Yeah, and people say that, but they don't. Uh, but, it, but it's said so often that it, that it turns into a cliche of, t- of sorts. But really sit down with that a little bit. And, and I would say map your choices, your taste, and your judgments to that cliche, if you will, to that quote. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. ask yourself honestly, looking at yourself in the mirror honestly, did you double down on business or did you right. not do that? Right. Right. Alex, can you tell us where we can find you on the internet and on social media
1: and maybe even see some of your work, my friend? I'm, I'm very shy. Uh, so I'm not very, uh, you can't find me anywhere online. No, I'm joking. Uh, I'm everywhere. Uh, I'm not hard to find at all. Uh, IndieFilmHustle.com is the, probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, uh, if you want to reach out to me personally, AlexFerrari.com. Uh, for screenwriters, BulletproofScreenwriting.tv. Um, from Film Entrepreneurs, you can go to filmbiz. I think filmbusiness.com, which is a shortcut to go to filmtrepreneur.com. Um My movies are available on Amazon. Uh, you can watch them there for free. Uh, indiefilmhustle.tv is the streaming service. IFH Academy is the course. Uh, all our courses, uh, and I'm sure I'm missing a few other things. But uh, just type in Indie Film Hustle on Google, and things will come up.
0: You're everywhere. I'm <laughs> everywhere, and I'm nowhere. You're a blizzard of content. <laughs> Alex, I think the audience is going to do that. And uh, we'll, we'll end on this. Uh, you've got books. You've got films. You write. You direct. You produce. You have blogs, podcasts, classes, courses. You even do consulting. I watch some of those. And you keep it real with everybody. They're they're awesome. Um, what's the secret of spinning all these plates? And, and what does success look like for Alex Ferrari?
1: Success for me is uh, being able to help as many souls as possible on this planet, uh, helping them on their journey, uh, creatively or helping them on their journey period. Because a lot of the things I talk about transcend the film industry. Um, there's things that you can bring into your own life, um, regardless of what you do. But that for me, success is to touch as many people uh, and souls around the world as humanly possible. That in a positive way, in a very positive way, and hopefully lift lift, up of, lift us up a little bit from this kind of very negative place that we're all in right now in this time period that we're in. It's very, you know, it's a rough time to be around. I mean, you know, I grew up at a different time where you could go out. And until, you know, you woke up in the morning, you go out, you play, and then you would come home when the lights went out. Um, those days aren't around as much anymore for most places here in the U.S. at least. Uh, and, you know, I just want to want to kind of help as many people as possible. That's success for me.
0: Alex, I think that's a wonderful place to stop. Until round two, my friend, I'd wish you the best of luck, but I know you don't need it.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you, for, and thank you for doing what you do, brother. I appreciate it.
0: Anytime. I hope to talk to you soon. Take care. Have a good day. You too, my friend. Bye. All right. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice, by searching for Make It, Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. And you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, Go to www.bonsaifilm and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.